Welcome to the Duet Partner Podcast. My name is Nylon. At Duet, we pride ourselves on being the original studio management software for independent music teachers who want to focus on nurturing students, not running a business. Our dedication to teachers remains unwavering. Music is our passion and music teachers are our heroes. In a world that can seem heavy and overwhelmed with challenges, music is the great antidote. Teachers are the enablers, the incubators of future artistic expression. At Duet, we do everything we can to encourage your work, treat you with dignity, and express our gratitude for what you give the world. Striving to be a great teacher is a lifelong pursuit. And at Duet, we want to be your partner for continuing education along the way. This podcast will introduce you to your peers and the masters in your industry so that you can learn and be inspired just as you inspire others. Zachary, so great to have you with us today. Welcome to the Duet Partner Podcast. Thank you, Nyland. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited to introduce Zachary. I'm going to read a little bit of his bio here so that we can get an idea of the kind of expert that we have on our podcast today. Zachary Sweet is a registered teacher trainer with the Suzuki Association of the Americas. He is currently an instructor of cello at Nazareth College, Binghamton University, and on the faculties of Ithaca Talent Education and Music Together of Ithaca. Nationally, he is in demand as a clinician having led workshops, masterclasses, and institutes across the United States and Canada. Zachary performs extensively throughout the tri-state area as a soloist, chamber musician, and orchestral player. Zachary performs regularly with Cayuga Chamber Orchestra, the Society for New Music, and in a trio with mezzo-soprano Ivy Waltz and pianist Pedge Retz. Highlights this year include a recorded live recital for Civic Morning Musicals in Syracuse, New York in April of 2021, and a recital with Nazareth College Piano Trio at the Eastman School of Music in October. It's wonderful that you're back to performing and traveling. I know you were here in Utah this past summer, Zachary. That must feel really good. Uh, it was a life send, actually. I mean, after a year and a half of almost everything shut down, um, it was it was really refreshing to be back, and um, to just yeah be in in each other's presence and and energies again. Um, I yeah, yeah I, I did some online performing, some solo recitals uh, on like Facebook Live, but it doesn't it doesn't um, it's so different. It, it I wouldn't say that it's uh, it's less or worse. It's just so different to be in front of people. Yeah. Well, congratulations for getting back on on the performance and travel circuit. That's that's fantastic. And we, you know, I think all of us who are enjoying the con- I'm going to a concert tomorrow night, night live concert and I'm just I just love, you know, it's so fun to be reminded of of how different it is, like you say, is how different it is to to do something to listen or to perform virtually um versus in person. That in person experience can't be replicated. And what a change. I mean, what a what a different perspective as musicians to not be in front of people for a year and a half and then exactly. to actually yeah. be in the presence of that thing that we've missed so much and for it to have just a different meaning. You know, it's just yeah. it was it's it's you know, I'm not I'm trying to uh, you know, uh, balance what I learned from the pandemic cuz overall it's kind of a catastrophe for the whole world, but there is some perspective that I'm receiving from from this thing that's happened to all of us. Yeah. Yep. 
I think we're all, we could all say the same thing. I'm really excited to delve into your background and your teaching philosophy because as we established when we first talked and met, we actually have a lot in common, you and I, about our musical training as children. And I'm so excited to share this with our listeners. So would you tell us a little bit about your childhood and your musical training as a childhood and how you were first exposed to music? Happily. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I was raised in a, uh, a church household. My dad was a minister and my mom was a uh, choral director so uh, in, of his church. And so my earliest memories are singing in church. And, um, and I have a, a twin sister and older brother, and we sort of, you know, we're like <laughs> a barbershop quartet. My mom forced us. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> but we, you know, we really early on, we're, we're really learning how to sing. Uh, and then when about five years old, my mom got a career, started her career as an opera singer. And we moved to Berlin, Germany, where she uh, started singing with uh, Dresden Opera and then later on uh, Berliner Staatsoper. And and her, uh, she really started to develop an international career, which is uh, what she did for the next 15 years. She sang at the Met and uh, Covent Garden and just all around the world. And um, it was so interesting to learn that uh, that your mom did the same thing. Uh, yes. And yes. It was, um, My mother was an opera singer too. Yeah. And um, growing up and going backstage to the Met and I think uh, was at the times <laughs> kind of seemed like a drag to a 12 year old. Um, but in hindsight was, uh, was, was really informative on, um, on a culture of music and um, what, the the global perspective of music was and contrasting that with my personal relationship to music it was really uh it was really interesting and incredibly musical back <laughs> my whole yeah. childhood uh was was incredibly musical um so that informed my later self too as a teacher on creating a culture of music at home um really learning it like a language you know that's interesting what you say about this the sort of global impact of music. I, you know, as we've discussed, I spent time backstage of the Met as well. And I, I think I've I've come to the same conclusion as an adult that one of the things I love so much about the musical world is that it's you just feel this connection with people from all over the world. There, there is no sort of nationalistic culture of music. You know, it is, you have Russians and Germans and, you know, people from South America and, and it just everybody coming together in these productions. And you can do the same thing with a you know, small chamber ensemble too. You don't need to be putting on a huge, you know, pro opera production, but yeah, having all those people come together and, and be joined in this universal language, it was, yeah, it's really impactful. Very. So how did you get into cello then? It sounds like you were kind of being trained to be a singer. Yeah. Well, and I think I would have been if I were, um, if I were born female, because I really mm. wanted to be, I really wanted to be my mom. I was a, a very much a mama's boy. And, um, and I <laughs> quickly occurred to me that I would never be a dramatic soprano. Um, <laughs> and so uh, cello was presented to me. Um, I, my mom and have differing, and mom and I have different opinions on who chose what. Uh, but I, ch cello was given to me, and um, I started learning uh, from uh, by the time I was eight years old is when I started formally. And uh, I did not like it at first um, because you know I think I 
really just wanted to get to the good stuff as so often is the case. You know, I just wanted mm -hmm. to be good at the instrument already. I didn't want to work towards it. Um, but then, you know, as I uh, matured into uh, high school years, I, um, I started to practice. I always, it was so interesting. I always had this identity as a cellist. Uh, when I started, I knew I would be a cellist, I, but I never knew what it would take because I think uh, it took a, a while for me to realize how hard my mom had to work to receive what she had received. And so it was probably not until high school where I really, really started to practice. And fortunately, I had a, uh, a really strong background in music. And so uh, the progress really took quickly. Um, yeah. So yeah, and then the rest is sort of history. I went to Eastman right. for undergrad and graduate work, and then um, and then I had to figure out what to do with my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious about it, the difference between. I assume you started cello in Germany, and then you finished your high school years in the United States. Was there a difference between how you know the the education, the musical education, was approached in each of those two countries? What a good question. Um, yeah. Um, we, I would say my beginning, when I moved to the United States, I found, and this could have been because I was older, but I found that the, the organization of music was so cutting edge. So there was a lot of, um, um, opportunity for chamber music. There was a lot of opportunity for um, early education. Um, there was a lot of um, opportunity for um, me to do different competitions and, and things like that. And I had a teacher who was really knowledgeable uh, mm -hmm. with working with young people. And when I started cello, I had a teacher who was amazing cellist, but didn't really, had never started a young person before. And so um, I kind of flailed a little bit because I think a lot of stuff was just too hard for me. Um, and I think, you know, it was so interesting. And I really think about this a lot now is that with a musical family, the musical family that I had, I think the teacher that I, that I had expected more sooner because, because there was just sort of this idea that of course he's going to be great, you know, because he should be great because his mom is great sort of thing. But right. we're really, you know, it, it really took my high school teacher to realize that I knew nothing <laughs> and Interesting. Then, and to, to really build, um, uh, build up without breaking me down. Um, and then I had to do that in, again in college. And then finally, I feel like I, I, I understood music analytically and spiritually. That's so interesting. I have three children and my middle daughter, we tried her on uh, three or four different instruments with multiple teachers on each instrument. And she suffered from that, that same weight, you know, of like, well, of course you're going to do this. You should be good at it. Right. And my first and third children are exceptional. Um, and so I actually, it's one of the things I'm most proud of in my parenting is that in, I think, you know, third grade, second or third grade, we kind of just said, she's not going to do this. Like <laughs> we don't know what she's going to do, but, and she's found other things that she's passionate about that are at completely different worlds from what I'm familiar with. But, mm. but yeah, that is, that's a lot of pressure for a young child, especially, you know, if you aren't the one that gets those gifts or those interests that, that your, your very successful parents have. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I learned a lot from, from being younger myself and I just always, I never, 
not, I, I always knew I was going to be a cellist, you know, and it was that, and in, in that sort of grit and drive is, is so, uh, I was not, I was born with, I mean, I, I don't remember a time where, where I, I doubted that would be the case. And I'm so, I'm, and so these days I'm, I'm, I'm so em- empathetic towards my siblings who were really not driven um, by music mm-hmm. and, um, and now, and now students who, uh, who don't have that same drive. And how do you teach music this? How do you offer music as a language to everyone, regardless of drive, uh, work ethic, uh, et cetera? And these things, of course, we know now can be built and trained, but um, it's, it's really taught me a lot about empathy because I never, though I did struggle, of course, um, it, I never, um, doubted for a second that it would, uh, that it would, you know, blossom and turn into what yeah. I currently have. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and I love, yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that, that, that philosophy of approaching young children, because of course, you know, we all know as either as parents or teachers that the children, the child with that drive comes along more infrequently than we would like, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm certainly telling my 17 year old still to go practice and she's very, she's very driven and very accomplished, but she still needs me to nag her. So, so tell me more, a little bit more about, you know, how, how did you decide that you wanted to work with young children when, when that can be frustrating and you can feel like you have to drag them along for a while? A good story. Um, You know, I, so I went through Eastman as a performance major and had never, uh, fell into this trope as is so common um, uh, in conservatory that if that teachers are performers who couldn't make it or that sort of idea, there's that sort of cliche saying. Um, and I fell into that and really believed that I would never teach um, that it was, I was going to be a soloist or, you know, chamber musician or, you know, some, you know, performance aspect of career. And it took um, about 10 unsuccessful national auditions for me to realize, hmm. uh, for me to realize that I really had to, to, uh, reconsider my options. And so I actually had quit the cello for about a year after grad school. And, oh, wow. um, I fell into, um, this program in New York and it was sort of a last ditch effort. It was like, okay, if this doesn't work out, I'm actually might quit the cello for as a career permanently. And it was at the School for Strings in Manhattan, and I was living in New Jersey oh at the time. Oh my gosh, I attended the School for Strings as a child. Oh, that's so funny. Another connection. <laughs> I did. Oh, Another connection. So funny. <laughs> yeah. uh, wow. Um, I remember skipping around a room with Mr. Fletcher learning how to do How amazing is that? Yeah. Um, and Pam Devonport was my first teacher trainer, uh, who uh, Suzuki trained a uh, person who teaches people to teach the method. And um, I had no idea what the Suzuki method was. I mean, I knew it by name, but I really did not know anything about it. I really walked into this blindly and as a last effort to save what was going to be a musical career. And literally my life was changed uh, over, uh, I mean, I say overnight because that's, you know, dramatic, but it was, it's really seemed very immediately that I, that, wow, this is something that I actually could do. And um, I really credit her energy a lot to 
offering a window of opportunity. You know, they're like, oh, I could actually do this and be happy doing it and not feel like, mm-hmm. you know, I've given anything up. And um, man, I just, I dove, I dove in head first as so often I do. And, um, um, and I never looked back, honestly, for the, and I, that was in 2007, I think is when I enrolled at the school for strings. And it's been, it's been ever since then. And soon after that, that summer, actually, um, I started training in music together, which is, um, another early childhood program, uh, that is specializes in, uh, non-instrument specific general music education that is rhythm and movement and, and singing and dance. It's all about ba- building basic music competence through world music and, and exposure. And it's amazing. And, uh, I, I, it was, it transformed the next 15 years of my life. That's fantastic. Would you, would you just describe briefly the Suzuki, what the Suzuki method is? I think, you know, many of our listeners will have heard of it. It is well known, but but what what is the actual method? Because I think a lot of people kind of just confuse it with, um, you know, well, it's a series of books that have some repertoire yeah. in it, right? That you progress through, and and you know, it is so much more than that. So so tell us about it and what drew you to it. So Suzuki is uh, was a person and is a method. Um, Shiniki Suzuki. Um, I forget his dates. Gosh, I think he died in 1999 um, and he was about 80 years old. So somewhere around that time. Uh, anyway, he was a Japanese uh, violinist who um, grew up in his dad's violin uh, workshop, you know, um, violin workshop and was rece- received an instrument uh, at an early age um, with not a lot of formal training. And um, when he was about 40, he recognized that children, uh, young children, um, mastered the demanding dialects of the Japanese language and did it without reading and, you know, uh, just through immersion. And so he just ran with that idea of, uh, of that, the possibility of teaching music that way um, through an instrument. Um, without without music first as a language um, through um, immersion at home, listening, singing, uh, repetition, playing every day, uh, things that that children instinctively do when they learn a, a spoken language um, and uh, really copying all the components of that and um, and it and it truly works. I mean music is uh, historically, um, it's, it's suggested that maybe the, uh, the musical brain, uh, predated the verbal brain in our, uh, ancestors. And so, uh, though the syntax of spoken language is so much more complex, the, the, the musical syntax probably prepared our brains to, to speak. Um, and so, um, the method then was um, is something that has grown exponentially over the past 30 years, I would say. It began as its strings. Uh, violin, I think, was certainly the first one. And then I think uh, cello might have been second, maybe piano second. Uh, but currently, it's being uh, offered to brass and voice and recorder and guitar. And it's really exciting time to be here. And the method itself uh, uh, takes the ideas of Shiniki Suzuki about learning music as a language um, and 
extrapolates to all of the all of the instruments and and it does that in a few ways through um buttressed literature so beginning with uh, music that is appropriate for a beginner um mostly within an octave range and expanding um from there so then you are left with um lots of literature lots of books as you were referring to that uh, uh being able to play through them, amass a certain amount of artistry and fluency. And then coupled with that, you, there are group classes, there parent, there's parent education, there's um, institutes, there's workshops, um, there are individual instruction. Um, and it really fosters the relationship of between the parent and child and teacher to be, to create the triangle that is so classically um, the Suzuki method where everyone's learning out of respect and love and, um, and, uh, mutual progress. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I was started on Suzuki piano and, and my kids have done Suzuki strings as well. So we have tremendous respect and love for our, our Suzuki teachers and know that it, it does take a lot of training to get to the level that you've been, um, you know, as a, as a, as a teacher at that, that national level. So it's a lot, a lot of work and a lot of commitment from, from a teacher like you. Um, so you've learned a lot in your, in this journey. <laughs> and so we're going to delve into that a little bit. And I'm so excited for the topic that you've chosen to talk about today. Uh, our title is growing something from nothing career tips for new teachers. So as you just described, you, you were one of those new teachers once and, and did realize that this was your, your calling, but most musicians spend, hours like you and I did practicing our instruments and learning how to perform. And you said you, you went to Eastman as a performance uh, major, as a performance student and, and grad student. And so I think, you know, we can all agree it's, it's rare for young music students to have stewardship over another person's learning, right? Like my daughter has a few young violin students that she tutors at a pra- as a practice buddy, but that's really because of her own initiative and mostly a drive to want to make some money, not necessarily learn how to um, teach and mentor young yeah. people. So many musicians get through school not knowing much about how to teach another person to play their instrument and much less run a small business where they make money from their musical knowledge. And of course, you know, Duet is here to serve people who are trying to run their small businesses and, and make money uh, from their musical knowledge and pass on that love and respect and beauty that that um, they have enjoyed in their own instrument. So Zachary, it sounds like you teach a class for new teachers. And I'm excited for you to tell us today about what you teach in that class. I know we're going to get just a very little high level bit of it today, but, but tell us about your class. Why would a student take your class? Um, Where, where do you teach the class? Maybe first of all, why would a student take your class and what's the profile of your students? Why, why do they feel like, um, you know, what is it about their background or their motivations or their desires or ideas for their future that, that get you, get them to your class? Yeah, I've really thought about a lot about this this uh, topic, um, especially you know after um, becoming a teacher trainer and sort of thinking about what what is next. And um, not that I'll ever be done with Suzuki, but it it, it puts things into perspective because this for for many uh, for many years has been a goal. So for about probably about the past thirteen years, I've been really thinking about this point about becoming a teacher trainer, and so. In any case, um, I, I teach 
a version of this class in a, in a, in two different places out of, um, through the Suzuki association of the Americas. I do, a, I have a private studio, um, or I can offer this course privately and it's a unit one course and topics in that course would include, of course, the pedagogy of all the literature. Uh, but as I find it important also to, to really dive into, uh, beginning a career as a, an entrepreneur, uh, thinking of your, your, uh, teaching as a product, thinking of your lessons as um, as not marketing, but this is this is your work, this is your livelihood, this is your reputation, and so really honoring that those moments and making decisions um, that are thoughtful and um, and have the growth of that parent and child in mind um, because you want them in your studio until they're eighteen. Um, not only financially is that is that does that make sense, but also personally and more importantly personally, um, you you develop those connections and those relationships that become lifelong. Truly, um, yeah. and it's 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 always a little murky on uh, on talking about. Of course, you know, as Suzuki teachers, we talk a lot about learning or teaching from love and and um, doing everything out of love. But I think it's also really necessary that we're smart about the time we have. And, um, and that everything we're doing, uh, is supporting a career that has longevity and, and growth. And so yeah, teaching out of love doesn't, doesn't mean doesn't letting yourself them. being taken, take advantage of, or right. right. Yeah. Don't teach for free. <laughs> right. Love doesn't pay the bills. Right. Teaching for free will not, will not pay your student loans off. Um, right. and so thinking of things like, how do you, uh, what, what rate are you going to charge? What is the market value where you're living? Um, where are you going to hold group classes? What is the rent uh, on that space? Can you get it for free? Is there a bartering situation? You know, think just really thinking creatively um, um, as a beginning teacher, um, where are the materials coming from for your studio? Uh, where is your studio? Do you need a car? Is there access for people who don't have a car? Thinking of from all aspects of a business. And so we spend, um, you know, these courses are so jam packed. So we, we spend about an hour or two talking about these peppered out throughout the 25 hour course. I also, um, offer, throw this conversation, uh, and, uh, put a portion of my course, um, in the course that I teach at Nazareth college. Um, and, uh, this is now geared towards more towards college students, um, that are in an education program. Whereas, uh, through the Suzuki Association, the only requirement is that you are cleared for training, which has its own, you know, you can investigate that on your own if you're interested. But um, the the demographic is so wide through the Suzuki thing. Um, um, it, you know, can range from college students, uh, college sophomores. I did a, a training course in Jane. Uh, oh, gosh, I guess it was May. Um, and, you know, we had college students. Um, that were probably 19 and we had students that were um, probably in their thirties that were Hmm. already, you know, in major symphonies. And so it's a really interesting eclectic group of people. And the theme there is an an interest in children and teaching their instrument to, to young people. Um, Whereas in a college level, they're taking the course because they're required to. Um, And you know, it's uh, it's a mix of uh, of studio development, uh, like literature scheduling, that sort of thing, but also um, things that I've learned along the way um, that I didn't learn at Eastman 
quite frankly. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, I'm, it's so interesting to think of this, you know, the career that I've had, you would never, I would never have expected, um, nor would I have been open to it, um, at Eastman. Um, and there were, but there were so many things that I wish I had known for in, like, I wish I had known how to do my taxes, <laughs> leaving, yeah. you know, le as a graduate student, I wish I, um, uh, I wish I had known how to write a cover letter. Um, I, you know, these are th things that you just don't think about until you need them really, um, were, were quite important after, after leaving, um, after leaving Eastman, I didn't know how to write a professional CV. I didn't know there were so many things. And yeah. so, um, in this, uh, in this process, I try to share some of that along the way. Um, and you know, the colleges and universities are doing their best. There's a lot to learn. Um, I think in a lot of ways, um, the curriculum is out of date. Um, they have to take 18 credits of music history. I can tell you from my experience as not an academic, I have not thought about probably 90% of those courses that I've taken since I've taken them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so 18 is a lot. <laughs> um, and probably over exaggerated, but it was a lot like four or five courses, yeah. you know, but in yeah. any case, um, so uh, but it's always the chicken and the egg, right? So should I, you know, would I have received that information as an 18, eight, nine, you know, eight, I was there from 18 to 23. Um, yeah. Would I have been open to it? Um, or, you know, so who knows? Um, well, that's a good point. I mean, because you did go as, as a performer with an eye towards performing, right? So as you said, you might not have been open to those classes. You might not have um, under, you know, I mean, if you ended up being an, a musicologist or an academic, then those music history courses would have been important That's to right. you. But if you'd ended up as a performer, you might not have valued or wondered why you needed to take, you know, in music pedagogy or something. So, right. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's early on in a musician's life to really be able to, you know, narrow down what you're going to do with this you know, this thing that you've spent thousands of hours preparing, what do you think is the biggest gap in knowledge that you encounter with your students? I mean, is it knowing how to write a CV? Is it knowing how to do taxes? Is it sort of the, the self-promotion element or running a small business element? Or is there there's something else that is consistently lacking in their their understanding? Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's being creative. Hmm. So I get um, a lot of college students wherever I go that are just sort of following this path of learning music, um, memorizing it, performing, you know, rinse and repeat. And it is really effective for cello playing. But cello, being a good cellist as in, a, in a career as a cellist, being a good cellist is like everyone has to have that. You know, that's not optional. Yep. You know, it's everything after you're a good cellist that makes people, I think, marketable and successful. So, um, you know, in, in so many, I'm so thankful for um, those failed auditions because they really weren't failed. I learned so much about what it, about real world, like, oh my gosh, there are 300 people here for one spot. I am not going to get this audition. I really have wow. to like... I've really got to get this. And there are some people that, that do are successful at those auditions. Great. You know, so 
this conversation is not for you then. Uh, <laughs> or maybe it is, I don't know. Um, but for so many of us who have a drive for, for cello, for music, and for whom that model of career is not going to work out, it takes so much creativity. It takes, um, it, I think, creativity of self, creativity of, of uh, professional creativity. Um, you know, so, you know, just to give an example, you know, there are, I, there, I'm thinking of one person in mind who uh, is an exceptional violinist um, and also an amazing composer, also plays in a quartet, uh, is an amazing arranger, um, and is really you know, enjoying a, an enormous, successful, an enormously successful career because she was never really pigeonholed into one thing. Mm. And, and so thinking really, and my favorite artists are, are, are doing this, you know, you think of people like Yo-Yo Ma who could have just rinsed and repeat the Dvorak cello concerto his yeah. life, <laughs> but he didn't do that. He, he did that for 10 years, 15 years, whatever. And then he very quickly started this genre crossing cello recording projects. He's, I think his mm -hmm. first one was uh, the art of tango um, and ever, you know, where he's collaborating with authentic musicians from their, in their field, he's learning, he's recording, he sounds amazing. Um, and he's never looked back, you know, and he's enjoying this amazing, amazingly rich um, career. But more importantly, he's giving back to the to the musical community. And he has transformed the our idea of classical music within our lifetime yeah. because of all of his efforts. And now he has, of course, the Silk Road Project, which um, yeah. which uh, it, it empowers composers you know, from around the world, musicians from around the world. Um, and I think he, he is like the, the best example of what, um, of what music can, what a creative musician can be. Of course, it helps that he's a rock star cellist and could do no wrong. Well, and he got started very early, right? He of was course, he was yeah. known, he was famous so young, right? right? And could really capitalize on that. But you're right. I mean, I follow a lot of instrumentalists on social media. And, um, you know, I, there's one that I enjoy, this French uh, cellist, Camille Thomas. Do you follow her at all? Mm -hmm. she, she is doing music videos in all these different museums in Paris. And she does these transcriptions of opera arias, which I appreciate mm -hmm. particularly. Um, so unique repertoire. She debuted a concerto by Fazal Say, who is this Turkish composer and very, you know, co common, co which I think um, one work that he wrote for her specifically was um, about, 9-11 or maybe she just kind of played it as a as a tribute to that but mm. you know she's very engaged um in living composers and and bringing it to to spaces um that are yeah and and she's still very young it'll be interesting to see what she does by the time she's yo-yo ma's age but yeah, yeah I, I i that that's really interesting i mean you and it's more than just marketing yourself right i mean we we talk a lot about how to market yourself as a teacher, as a performer. One of our other recent podcasts is with um, a voice teacher in the San Francisco Bay Area 
Malia Morris, and she has 150,000 TikTok followers because she talks um, very in very detailed um, and academic terms about the the voice and the construction of it physiologically, and she mm. um, knows her stuff really really well, and so that's kind of a niche that she's carved for herself and and become very well known for that and. Um, and you know, it, it, I think you're right. It can creativity can be manifest in lots of different ways. How do you teach a student to do that, or can you, or is it something that some people are just good at and others are not? It's a good. I think, I think anyone can learn to to be a good educator of young people. There is, um, there there are some personalities I think that are that gear towards that, and I think that sort of, you know. Um, edits itself along the way. Um, um, for me, I had no experience with children before I started teaching children and I was terrified of teaching children. And so mm. one of the things that I had to quickly learn, um, again, I really wanted to be a good teacher because, because I saw the effect of good teaching. Um, I saw Pam my teacher, Alan Harris, I saw really significant people in my life affecting change within a short time. And so I wanted that. It seemed like magic at the time, you know, and, um, what, why, why are they choosing that word? What are the, why this game? Like, why, why this speech? What, what about the, you know, like how do they choose all the right things to say and Mm -hmm. to create this, experience for a young person. And so there an interest in wanting to be a good teacher, I think is where you start. Um, So, um, and then I quickly realized how little I knew about children. So um, I I then had to become, I mean, some maybe call an expert. I just had to be knowledgeable about children. I had to, and that went two ways. I had to be uh, clinically knowledgeable. What could I expect of a certain age? What mm-hmm. are the milestones in development? What are um, some things to look at without, of course, expecting those milestones, right? Because everyone reaches things um, at their own pace. Um, but, you know, things that to look for um, when the time might be right. Um, and then, to the second part of that one was I just had to be in front of children for, I mean, I've probably for the past 13 years, I've probably spent conservatively 30 hours a week with children, observing, teaching, guiding, noting. And for the first couple of years, I probably was the worst teacher ever, just not knowing, not picking up anything, but everyone sort of starts as a novice and you, you um, it's this. So the, the next thing would be uh, the third prong to that would be like balance between um, embracing being a novice again, while continuing education, while always being curious and about the, and, and they, it's this like balance. It's this dance that being a novice, but yet wanting to know more, have to have. You have to be both. You can't yeah. just be curious um, and expect to be a uh, a master in the beginning. You know, you have to embrace being a novice 
and also be curious about what masters do. So, you know, one of the things that I wish I had was something, you know, that duet offers. I feel like a lot of my, I could figure out the first three parts, but what I didn't know was, was the logistics, the, the, you know, the, the, the schedule pains, the, um, the content, the, you know, all of this stuff that I think Mm -hmm. is, that, um, is exciting about duet. I just scrambled for, for years on, on trying to get to wrap my head around. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, and so, you know, that, that would have been really helpful, um, in 2007. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I'm ha- I'm happy to hear that you've discovered us now. What what are some of the fundamental guidelines you offer your students for starting a career? I mean, and and specifically from the setting up of a studio man studio. So so you know, how what have you taken from what you've learned about the billing and the scheduling and and the repertoire management and and what do you teach your students now as they're starting out? Um well, you have a couple choices. So I, I sort of die, I'm sort of dabbling in both. Um, when I uh, pretty soon after I completed my training, um, I started teaching for a school. So you can certainly teach for a school who manages all of that that work, but you're going to pay an overhead. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other thing, uh, or you become a, a a your your own. Uh, business and you are a freelancer. Um, now there's a couple options. Of course, you can go the LLC route. You can do, you can establish yourself um, as an entity just to protect yourself. If you have insurance things, if you're if you're finding that you you have a building or, or you're renting a space that doesn't that you need insurance for, and you, the, becoming an LLC might be uh, um, uh, something worthwhile so that you're protected, that you, you yourself are protected. Um, what I have ended up, what I always recommend, regardless of what path people choose, is really being comfortable with the Schedule C um, for taxes, uh, which is such a weird answer. <laughs> because No, I, I get it. But acknowledging and sort of going through this um, reframing of, of, of what is part of your business, you know, so the insurance you're spending on. Um, for for that for that business, the m- materials you're using for marketing, the um, you know the instrument insurance, the utilities you you know there are so many things that um, that that at the end of the day really add up to um, to a sizable amount, and it, it it and it helps you keep track of not only expenditures but also things that you're like, oh, this might be a worthy investment because at the end of the day, it's going to be a tax write-off. For instance, it's like a new cello. You know, if I was going to buy a carbon fiber cello, it's a it's a really, really expensive um, front load cost, but it has a depreciation value that I can write off for the next five years in addition to the, you know, to what I spend immediately. And I bring that up because I want to buy a carbon fiber cello. Yeah. <laughs> um, but those are things that I, I really uh, did not. I had to really learn like boots on the ground. Like I, I did not learn um, that. I learned that the hard way. Um, yeah. You know, calculating mileage. 
driving from for all the Schedule C things, all, all the 1099 uh, business you have, everything is tax deductible. So, you know, really thinking of yourself as a business um, and wanting to be the the um, authentic teacher, not teaching like a business, but operating a business and being a uh, a, a warm teacher at the same time. It's, yeah. it's about, everything is a, is a dance. It's a balance. Yeah. Well, we will be very excited to hear more about this from you, Zachary, when you do a live webinar for us yeah. in January. So the first week of January, you're going to be presenting more of these ideas on how new teachers can set up their studios and, and continue learning to be the best teachers they can be. So Thanks so much for all of these insights today, and we'll be excited to hear more from you in in January. Before we go, though, I want to ask you about just your favorite teacher. Who who was someone you've mentioned a couple a couple of your teachers' names over the course of our conversation? But who is it that you really felt um, helped shape you as a as a person as well as a musician? Wow, there have been so many. I really um, i I think I. I respect teachers, um, the teachers that I've had and the teachers that I, uh, that maybe I not have not had, but know about, I respect, I think teachers are the coolest people in the world. Um, and I mean that, I think they have the, the most creative minds and they are knowledgeable and, uh, they want to do everything, uh, well. And I think that curiosity, that lifelong learning, I'm, I'm really obsessed with myself. So not, this is a shout out to all the teachers that I've ever had. So if you're um, but I think the one I really have to give credit to is Alan Harris. And he is a retired teacher. Uh, he was at the Eastman School of Music for many years. I think he's he must have taught there for like 30 or 40 years on and off. Um, and he was a father figure when I really, really needed it the most, I think. Um, there were so many personal things that we dealt with in that studio um, in our lessons between he and I. He reshaped me as a cellist, as a thinker, um, as um, as a human. I mean, he really, really changed my life. Um, and so, I think without his influence, um, maybe you know, I wouldn't be as curious. Maybe I wouldn't be as um, thoughtful. Um, and so, I, I have to, I have to give it to him. There are there are more recent experiences that I've had that I'm really, really fond of. Um, so I have to shout out to Tanya Carey, who really like has informed um, tremendously the past four years of my life. Um, but yeah, I would have to say first the the OG for me is Alan Harris. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a fabulous testament to what teachers are capable of. So, thanks so much, Zachary. Thank you, it's, it's a pleasure to to speak with you and to have somebody of your expertise and level here on our podcast. We're really honored.